Hi, everyone. So the United... Sorry, I read a lot of um, uh, blogs, so a lot of things that I tend to think about, because all these blogs come from America, not many Australians seem to be writing them that I've found. But anyway, so anyway, if you've been reading some of the things I've been reading... In reading some of the things I've been reading, um, the United Methodist Church in America split in January this year. Um, So you may have heard of it, yep. So it was was a bit unusual. It was a fairly amicable split with um, arrangements being made for church property and things like pension funds that were sort of being divvied up. But the split had an interesting and and long-drawn-out history. Uh, There'd been tension over the whole... um, the gay and lesbian issue for decades in the church. And a year ago, I think it was February last year, uh, the United Methodist Church held a vote and the traditional view won. So the traditional view is the biblical view of marriage. Um, yeah, so the reason that one was because at that stage the African churches were allowed to vote and so that, that got them over the line. But then in January this year they held another, another vote and that view lost, um, and that, that led to the church split. Um, but in the US, it wasn't so much that, um, uh, the, the, sorry for the political terms, but the, the progressive element outnumbered the, the more conservative, those who held a biblical view of marriage. It wasn't that the progressive so much outnumbered them. Um, it was, it was a, a large number of the people in the body of the church that sort of didn't care either way. And so they just voted with what seemed right at the time. But the point is that a minority group within the church was able to completely change the church's theology and view on marriage. So let's, let's pray, shall we? Heavenly Father, oh, what an what a awesome and fearful thing it is to be up here um, trying to teach your word. And Lord, I pray that um, the things I'm about to say are indeed encouraging, helpful and, and honouring to you. And, um, and I pray for forgiveness if, if, if they're not. Um, amen. So looking at Matthew 16. So in our text, uh, the Pharisees and Sadducees, Sadducees again approach Jesus to test him. So we'll just have a quick refresher on these two groups, just in case uh, you're not quite aware of uh, who they are. So the Pharisees and Sadducees are the main... Um, religious dominant religious parties of the day so i'm just getting rid of reflection here um and the pharisees were more popular with the with the people and the sadducees were sort of more popular with the um, aristocracy now with the pharisees as going back to the old testament we see again and again and again god's people abandoning his law and his ways and so the Pharisees started out intending to do the right thing. Uh, they wanted to hold to a firm view of the law um, and not lose favour in God's um, sight again. But what they ended up with was a legalistic and formulaic righteousness uh, that completely missed the purpose of the law. So Jesus calls them hypocrites because they hold to the smallest details of the law, like tithing even the herbs they grow in their garden, but then miss the bigger things like honouring your mother and father. Um, um, they would um, find, find ways through the law, uh, Corban, I think it was called from memory, I should have written that down, but uh, where they didn't have to look after their parents since their old age with, with their finances. So 
they would um, go after the small things but ignore the main point, the big things. The Sadducees, on the other hand, were often quite the opposite. They were some, somewhat sceptical of many of the Old Testament books. They denied the existence of angels. They denied that man had a soul or spirit. And they even denied the resurrection of the body. They were more concerned with the power here and now. Yet in this passage, as in others, we see the Pharisees and the Sadducees united. They're united in their desire to get rid of Jesus because of their hatred for him. And here they come again to test him. Now there's nothing wrong itself with testing. It can be just wanting to weigh up and confirm claims. Thanks, Ian. So 1 John 4, 1, you'll all know these verses. So, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, for many false prophets have gone out into the world. Jesus sees it very right to test, because we need to know if if we are indeed following the truth, following God's truth. Next one, Ian. Yep, yep. So Acts 17. The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived there, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So the Bereans didn't just... Yep, you can let that go now. So the Bereans just didn't receive the word with all eagerness, but they examined the scriptures daily to check what was being said was true. Back in the 90s, me and Robin were a little Bible college and that was one of our catchphrases at the time, um, be like the Bereans. Um, so we weren't just, just, not just accept everything we say, but get into the scriptures, check them out for yourself, you know, confirm what we're saying is, is, is true. Um, we shouldn't just accept something just because, you know, I'm up here saying it, some other Christian's saying it, or it's in a book we've got from Kurong. It is indeed good and right to test the spirits. But the testing here, what's happening here, is not at all in the positive sense. They're not wanting to be taught by Jesus, but they're wanting to tempt him and to trap him. Their test was to ask for a sign from heaven. As Matthew Henry suggests, if Jesus had shown them some sort of miraculous sign, um, they most likely would have said it would proved he was in league with the prince of the power of the air, meaning Satan. And if he did nothing, well, that was proof that he had no power. So whatever he did or didn't do, the Pharisees and the Sadducees would have used that for proof of their accusations. But through all this, the amazing thing is that he has been doing signs, things that no one's ever seen before. But he wasn't going to do them on demand. These people aren't actually interested in signs or in what he says. By this time, he's healed lepers and healed people who are crippled, He's given sight to people born blind. He's fed the 5,000 and, the, and then the 4,000, just to name a true, just to name a few. In Luke 16, Jesus tells the story of the rich man and Lazarus, where the rich man is dead and in Hades and is wanting to go back and to warn his brothers. Jesus said to him, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone rises from the dead. The problem here is not the signs or what Jesus says and does, but it's in the hardened hearts of the people. This was and still is the barrier to faith in Jesus. Thanks, Ian. 
So for the wrath of God, so Romans 1, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For the invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew him, they did not honour him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So Paul tells us that people have no excuse. The knowledge of God is clearly there, but people choose to go their own way. It's their foolish hearts that are barriers to faith. So back to our text. In verses 2 and 3, in typical Jesus fashion, he turns it all back on them. And many of us, particularly the farmers among you, I'd imagine, still use this saying today, red sky at night, shepherds delight, red sky in morning, sailors warning. Yeah, getting some nods. So so the point here is that Jesus is telling the people that they can interpret the natural signs, but not the supernatural signs that they're looking for. The signs are there, but they refuse to see them and understand them. The sign of the times doesn't point back in history or forward to the future, but they point to Jesus and the dawning of his kingdom now. The signs are right there in front of them, but they deny them and they deny him. And indeed, Jesus calls them an evil and adulterous, an adulterous generation for demanding such signs. So next one again. So in, in a similar um, episode back in Matthew 12... Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But but he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given it except for the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. For the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So without going into detail about the whole thing here, what does Jesus attribute the repentance of, the repentance of Nineveh to? In verse... I'll just put it back up again. In verse 41, um, they repented at the preaching of Jonah. It doesn't actually mention miracles or signs, but the preaching, the preaching of repentance and preaching for people to return to God. Now, it certainly may have been that the Ninevites knew what had happened to Jonah, that he was in the belly of the fish and had been delivered, so to speak, from death. And this certainly would have added weight to Jonah's preaching. Um, but it wasn't the signs that turned him to turn the people, but the preaching. And it's the same with Jesus. His miracles and signs certainly attracted people and certainly pointed to who he was. And the sign of Jonah certainly points to his death and resurrection, but it was preaching, it was his preaching and teaching that was the most important. He spent three years teaching his disciples and travelling around the regions doing the same with with the people. Um, We've got those fateful verses in John 6.66. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus' miracles had attracted many people, 
but his teaching had turned most of them away. Back to Matthew 16 and verse 5. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. So no doubt most of you here are like me. Back in, you know, there was that time when um, you wouldn't go to a baker or a cafe or McDonald's. You'd pack the thermos, you'd pack the picnic baskets, you'd pack sandwiches, you'd take things with you. Um, But back... Back in these days, um, you travel long distances. Sure, there might have been food to purchase in places, but if you didn't carry food, chances are you'd be going hungry. And here the disciples realise that they haven't brought any bread. So Jesus says to them, watch and beware the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And again, in typical fashion, the disciples just just don't get it. Um, And again, it's one of those passages where you've really, really got to wonder about these blokes. You know, they've just seen back in chapter 15 the feeding of the 4,000 and before that the feeding of the 5,000 and here they are troubled about their lack of bread. No wonder Jesus would call them little men, men of little faith. But see, Jesus here is he's trying to get these, these people to think deeply about who he is and he doesn't want to have to spoon feed them all the answers. The signs he talks about actually point to who he is and Jesus uses this as an occasion to warn them about being led astray. The problem is we don't want to follow clear biblical teaching and doctrine. We want to follow the whims of our own hearts. Uh, When Robin and I go on holidays, one of the things we do like to do is visit other churches. Um, We've met some wonderful people from a variety of backgrounds and cultures in in lots of great churches. And, um, you know, it truly is a glimpse of heaven. It's just, just fantastic. But it can be hard to find those churches. Um, if I know we're going to a particular town, I'm going to be there for a Sunday, I'll go on the internet, search out what churches are there, look at their websites, if I get a chance, maybe even listen to the sermons. Um, and often you have a look at the, at, the, at the website, the statements of faith and that sort of thing, and you think, oh, yeah, this can be a pretty good church. But you walk in the door, the rainbow flags flying proudly up the back, and the Bible is barely even mentioned if it's opened at all. So on the one hand, they do seem to hold to all the tenets of the faith, but the reality is much different. So there's two basic issues at play here for Christians to be on the lookout for. There are those who want to take away from the Bible, the gospel minus people, and those who would impose extras on the Bible, gospel plus people. So the gospel minus people are a little bit like the Sadducees. They deny clear biblical teaching, saying it's either plain wrong or it's just not relevant for today. With the the Reformation 500 years ago, Christians fought and died to reform the church and bring it back to its biblical roots. But as throughout all church history, but um, I guess particularly in the last 150 years, you've got post-modernism and then... You had modernism first and then post-modernism. The Bible and the doctrines of the church have been constantly under attack. In desiring to be relevant and progressive, many churches have done away um, with such concepts as the inspiration and inerrancy of scripture, creation, atonement, the virgin birth, hell, the resurrection. They still talk about Jesus, but this Jesus has little to do with what Holy Scripture tells us. Um, 
Before I started coming to this church, uh, I was attending an, Ang- an, Ang- an Anglican church, um, and they were doing a, a Bible, a Learn the Bible series. Um, so I had to buy this great big thick folder of all this material and spend quite a bit of money. But um, at the time, I thought, oh, this, this should be pretty good. But as we went through the course and the course materials, I quickly realised that they pretty much denied everything in the Bible. I brought this up in class and was shocked to find that I was the only one in the room who had any concerns about this. The only thing we could agree on was the resurrection, and at least they accepted that, but in many churches, even the resurrection is denied. Um, And these things progress along. So you you start off going back to the 70s, they accept um, easy divorce. Um, Then they start questioning whether... You know, you need to get married at all, whether, you know, any of that sort of stuff has to happen. And then a couple more steps and then suddenly we're full on apologists for same-sex marriage and the gay lifestyle. So they will all talk about love and peace and unity and the fraternal relationships of all Christians, but the whole time denying the actual gospel. And they will also accuse those of us who hold to such antiquated ideas that the Bible should be believed... Um, and that those, those of us who follow the Bible are all fundamentalists and legalists. I was listening to a, a podcast during the week by a fellow called Joel Beakey, and he was talking about holiness. Um, but he made the point that it wasn't legalism that made Daniel resolve not to, devile, not to defile himself by eating at the king's table. It was his love for God. It's not legalism that stops me lusting after other women. It's my love for God and my wife that does that. So the gospel plus people, a bit like the Pharisees, they have the word and often agree with many of the things we agree with, but if you look at their statements of faith and get into discussions about faith and the Bible and the centrality of Christ and the gospel, you don't tend to end up with many disagreements. But then you are told you've had to have this experience or done this thing to, to, to be a real Christian. When we first moved back to sale in 2001, uh, our, our daughter... Um, with some of her friends, joined up with some of her friends and attended a local one of the local church groups. Um, before she went, I'd talked to some of the people there and everything seemed pretty good. But then she came home one day with some Bible study material that said the next step for her to be a true Christian was she had to speak in tongues. So I talked to the leaders and they just dismissed it and said, look, this is just what we believe. And although our daughter had fun there and was making friends there, um, I said, look, sorry, you know, this is just not, not biblical, it's not right, so we pulled her out. And I gather we've had similar things maybe, but um, look, at the end of the day, we don't have time to get into it, but, but such ideas are, of course, nonsense. And the problem here is that the gospel of Jesus isn't denied, but they add things onto it. They burden you down with all these extras. Some of you may remember a book released about 20 years ago called The Prayer of Jabez. It was a best-selling book, selling 9 million copies in two years, the first two years. Uh, it's still quite popular. Um, and if you go on the... I was looking at Kurong, at the testimonies, um, it, there's many, many people claiming this book has undeniably blessed them uh, through reading the book and, reading, and using the prayer of Jabez. On the surface, the book quotes a Bible text and argues to take it seriously. So it all sounds very Christian. But it's also so very, very wrong. 
It takes an obscure text from 1 Chronicles, takes it right out of context, and then applies a false gospel to it. The prayer of Jabez is a prosperity gospel, the health and wealth gospel. Um, to quote another prosperity gospel teacher, Joel Osteen, and the title of his book, um, it seeks your best life now, not later, not in glory with Christ, but it's all about the here and now. As anyone who's read the New Testament or looked at church history or even looked today around the world at, at what's happening to Christians, to identify yourself with Christ most often leads to persecution, poverty and even torture and death. It's not your best life now. This is a false gospel and on the surface it may seem all good and all true but it's an imitation of the true gospel. It's a counterfeit gospel. Um, but yeah, are we, are we immune to that sort of stuff though? So when I pray for someone who's ill, do I just pray for their healing and nothing else as if health here and now was the most important thing. What if they aren't healed but suffer a chronic illness for the rest of their lives? What if they die? What if they do recover, they are healed, but the suffering while they were ill has led them to question God's goodness and, uh, and they struggle and even deny their faith? So perhaps we should be praying for the person in the midst of their suffering, for their faith and trust in God, for their ongoing salvation and their growth in holiness in the face of suffering and not just their healing. Praying for healing is good, but it's not the be-all and end-all. Um, sometimes God does say no. So healing on its own is really only concerned for the here and now and not eternity. So whether it's the gospel plus or the gospel minus people or, or, or some mixture of the two, uh, the problem with all this is that we're not following Christ or the Bible, but our hearts and our own passions. Thanks, Ian. So as Paul warns, sorry, as Paul warns Timothy... For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but have itching ears but having itching ears they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wandering off into myths. And the next one, Ian. There is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. So again, the warning here is that what seems right to man is actually the broad road that leads to destruction. Our culture tells us to follow your own heart, but the reality is that our hearts are deceitful. So rather than following our hearts, we actually need to guard our hearts. So back in Matthew 16, talking directly to his disciples, Jesus tells them to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. So while leaven is not necessarily a modern yeast like some translations have, um, thanks Mary, it, it does the same thing. And that's why it's such an appropriate illustration to use. A tiny amount of leaven is introduced to a lump of dough. It penetrates, it works slowly, it grows and spreads throughout the whole lump. And if left alone, it changes the character of the lump of dough to make it into something else. This is how false doctrine operates. And sadly, it's very effective, as we, as we can see in many churches and denominations. So I started off talking about the United Methodist Church in America, but it also happens here in Australia too. So as many of you will be aware, um, as a church we moved away from the Baptist Union. Now there are many great churches in the Baptist Union, but there are also some that you 
really have to question and that's why the elders at that stage took the biblical view not to associate with such churches and if you're worried that this sort of stand is harsh thanks Ian so Paul tells us I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel not that there is another one but that there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you let him be accursed Paul knows the danger of false teaching even in the first century he was already having to fight against it we need to fight against it we need to guard ourselves from it so the ecumenical movement talks about peace and love but it forgets the biblical warning that we're actually in a spiritual war thanks Ian oh no there's another quote there go back oh that didn't come up sorry about that meant to be another quote in there which would have been easier if you could read it so a quote from J.C. Ryle beware of the very small beginnings of false doctrine every heresy began at some time with some little departure from the truth there is only a little seed of error needed to create a great tree it is these little stones that make up a mighty building it was the little timbers that made the great ark that carried Noah and his family over a deluged world it is the little leaven that leavens the whole lump it is a little flaw in one link of a chain cable that wrecks the gallant ship and drowns the crew it is the omission or addition of one little item in a doctor's prescription that spoils the whole medicine and turns it into poison we did not quietly tolerate a little dishonesty or a little cheating or a little lying just so let us never allow a little false doctrine to, to ruin us by thinking it is just a little one and can do no harm the Galatians seem to be doing nothing very dangerous when they say when they said observe days and months and times and years and yet Paul says I'm afraid of you uh, meaning that um, he took that from the King James meaning that he's, af- he's afraid he laboured in vain for them so what do we need to do three three suggestions so number one yep we need to know our Bibles so people fall for the prayer of Jabez, the shack, Jesus calling, Joel Osteen, Joyce Meyer. They fall for the prosperity gospel. Um, they fall for all sorts of poor teaching and false teaching because they don't know their Bibles or how to understand it. We need to be like the Bereans and examine scripture to see if people's claims stand up. We need to know and understand good doctrine. And we not only need to understand it, but we need to make sure that our children know it as well. Next one, Ian. There's nothing new under the sun. When church history is talked about, a lot of people just turn off. But we need to understand something of what's happened in the past, what battles have been fought, what arguments have taken place. Looking at history, we actually see the same things happening again and again. There's nothing new under the sun. Understanding where we've come from, how we've arrived where we are, seeing the greatness in some of the historic writings... Um, such as the confessions the the creeds the puritans and the church fathers all help us to guard our hearts Um, it's just a little bit of an example which hopefully you all get it but in in america at the moment the democrats look like accepting a full-blown socialist as their next leader Um, anyone with any knowledge of history will know that socialist parties um, don't lead to prosperity but the devastation of countries and their people 
And yet a lot of people, especially a lot of young people, just seem to be all on board with this. Um, they don't know their history. So that's a danger to us. If we don't know our history, if we don't know our church history, if we don't know what people in the past have done, we too can be destined to fall for the same false teaching, the same false promises as what people did in, in, in days gone by. Next one, Ian. So yeah, the fact that we're all here suggests that I'm preaching to the converted. Prior to coming here, Robbie and myself attended most churches in Sale and we quickly realised that what they taught or didn't teach, if they taught at all, um, actually had very little to do with what the Bible tells us. Hence, you know, that's why we ended up here. So we need to be careful about the churches we are attending, but also the churches we're visiting, we're on holidays, um, and if we move to somewhere else, what church we're attending there. Um, Yes, we need to make sure we're encouraged to listen with open Bibles, open Bibles, open minds. Um, and all the churches, all the churches we've attended have had many wonderful, friendly, welcoming, helpful people. But that's not why I necessarily go to church. I go to church to hear the word of God preached. I go to church to be challenged to move towards holiness and godliness. I go to church to be encouraged that for the next six and a half days of the week, I will look to Christ and grow in my faith and seek the lost. If I'm just in church for nice people, well, I can go to a football club or a four-wheel drive club or a boot scooting lessons. Um, so, yeah, does the church I'm attending hold fast to the Bible and the historic doctrines of the faith? So I just want to end up with a little lesson from history. And this is, this is actually a quote. <clears throat> this is a quote as is. I realise some of the, the terms in there may not go down all that well with some people but at the end of the day this is the quote as it is and, and I can't remember where I found this so when pre-lactical apologists, that's prelates were sent by the Church of England throughout the countryside of Scotland in the 17th century to turn the Presbyterians into good Anglicans the prelates were amazed at the biblical and theological knowledge of these rather poor Scottish peasants in town after town the prelates were soundly refuted and turned away by simple folk who had a solid grasp of reformed theology. Sadly, today we have a different situation. Popular speakers advocate doctrine that are blatantly unscriptural, irrational and unlearned, and unlearned churchgoers accept them willingly. If the heads of households built up a good reformed library, study, learn as they ought and then teach children the truth, these false prophets among us would never receive a hearing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your word and how it reveals to us your Son and your glorious saving grace. Help us to be on guard against false teaching um, for those who would call themselves our brothers and sisters but who would bleed your word of all its life or would heap on conditions and additions and choke out the truth and who therefore ultimately seek to destroy the pure faith of many. Lord, we pray, preserve your church and preserve us. Help us to be diligent in our faith and to be like the Bereans in our search for the truth of your word. Help us to take the saving faith given us to us seriously and to strive onwards to gain the prize. That is, live with you, both now and on into eternity. Amen. <laughs>